Mark chapter 1, and I'm reading from verse 1 to verse 15. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptising in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time... Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. I think it's really hard for people who live in Australia to imagine what it would be like to have your country taken over by another country. But it's certainly been the case for plenty of countries around the world. I mean, during the Second World War, Poland and France and numerous other countries were invaded, completely taken over by foreign armies and foreign governments. We've seen a little bit closer to home in more recent years with East Timor being taken under control by the Indonesian government for a time. Uh, we live in a country where freedom and independence are very much taken for granted and it's difficult for us to know what it would be like to long for freedom. Uh, back in my school teaching days, I worked for a, few, uh, for a year uh, with a Hungarian lady who was actually a young girl in Hungary in 1956 when the Russians invaded Hungary. Uh, effectively, uh, Hungary had been under Russian control since the mid-1940s, but in 1956 there was a, a, a popular revolt that was, that was beginning to spread throughout the country, so the Hungarian government called in the Russian army to quell the revolt and to take control of the country. And she said it was the most horrifying and terrifying time. She said there were thousands of soldiers and tanks were pouring through the streets. 
Hundreds of people, thousands of people disappeared. Thousands more were deported to Russia. People were arrested, imprisoned. People were shot on the streets. And if you go searching for the photos, I've, I've chosen just a few of the more gentle ones. But it's quite incredible to see what happened. And for many, many years, in fact, for the best part of 30 or 40 years, the people of Hungary longed for the day when they would be free, when they would have self-government, when they would have control of their own country again. I think it's hard for us to imagine what it would have been like for people to live under those conditions. And I think it's hard for us to understand what it must have been like in Israel at the time of Jesus. They were living under foreign rule. They were living under the rule of the Romans. They hadn't enjoyed self-rule in their own country for hundreds of years. They'd been occupied by four different superpowers, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now they're living under the control of the Romans and longing for their freedom. But for the people of Israel, freedom wasn't a question of politics or self-determination. It went way, way deeper than that. It was freedom to live as God's people. Freedom to have God's king ruling over them. It was about living freely in the land that God had given to them. At the time of Jesus, they longed for freedom from that foreign rule. They longed for the day when God would come and establish his kingdom. And the hope wasn't just wishful thinking. Their hope was firmly based on promises that God had made. God said he was going to act. Now, it's against that hope, against that background, that we actually have these opening words of Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel opens by quoting two prophecies, prophecies that would have been incredibly well known by the people of Israel back in Jesus' day, verses that they would have committed to memory. Have you got Mark chapter 1 open? Have a look at what it says, those opening verses, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Now the first part of the quote there actually comes from Malachi, which is the only Italian prophet in the pages of the Old Testament. I'm not sure if you're aware. That is the joke, okay. Uh, Malachi, it says this in Malachi chapter 3. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. This is God speaking. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. God's coming. God says that the messenger is going to prepare the way. Then the Lord who you are seeking will appear at his temple. And in the last chapter of Malachi, right in the closing verses of the book, he says that that prophet will be Elijah. He will be the one who prepares the way for God to come. And then the other part of the quote that Mark says is from Isaiah. The full quote actually says this, a voice of one calling, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places plain. 
and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The messenger is going to go ahead and prepare the way. He's going to build a highway for God to come. And then Mark tells us that John the Baptist came. And when he came, he met with a huge response. Have a look at it in there, chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, verse 4. It says this. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching baptism and repentance of, for the forgiveness of sins. And look at what it says, verse 5. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John is preparing the way for God to come. And have a look at verse 6. Mark chapter 1, verse 6, John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. This is not a comment about his lack of fashion sense or his paleo diet. This is actually a comment that's supposed to alert us to the fact that this is Elijah. That's the way that he's described in the pages of the Old Testament. That's the outfit. It's as though John has gone to the costume shop and said, I'd like to hire the Elijah costume if I can. See, John knows what he's doing. And Mark knows what's going on here as well. A whole bunch of Old Testament threads and prophecies are all being pulled together and the longing of the people is about to be fulfilled. Do you get the grand picture that's being painted here? Do you see what it is that God is just about to do? Great things are about to happen. God is about to step onto the world stage. And then the next thing that we read is this, verse number nine. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Now, I think the full impact of this has probably lost a little bit on us. The original readers would have got it. Anyone in the Middle East would have got it. They knew Nazareth. It was a kind of a joke town in the Middle East. It was kind of the Dapto of the Middle East and my sincere apology to anyone who's from Dapto. And the fact that Jesus is a carpenter, well, that's not going to help. I mean, carpenters are really great, but when you're expecting a king, when you're expecting a prince, when you're expecting a general, a leader, a carpenter from Nazareth is is not what you're looking for. I mean, it's as though Mark's saying that the saviour of the world is a panel beater from Dapto. I mean, it just doesn't seem right. It just doesn't seem to fit. I said that one time at, at my previous church about Jesus being a panel beater from Dapto and uh, a lady came up to me afterwards and said, you, you know what my husband John does, don't you? And I said, yeah, he's a panel beater. And she said, can you guess where he's from? And so I quickly made a beeline over to him and apologised. But he thought it was quite funny, actually. So, But as if to wash away any doubts, look at what we have in verse 10. I mean, even the fact that Jesus is being baptised by John, that's kind of throwing you off the scent. I mean, why does he need to be baptised? But look at what happens at his baptism. As Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This is God's son. This is the one that God promised. This is God coming into the world. 
Now, many of you won't be able to remember back to this, but there was a very famous election campaign in 1972 here in Australia, federal election campaign. Had the shortest, neatest slogan ever, and it was probably what won them the election. The slogan was, It's Time. There's Goff and little Paddy wearing their It's Time t-shirts. He looks so casual and relaxed. Goff, doesn't he? But the idea was pretty simple. It's time for change. Uh, it's time for a different government. It's time for a fresh way of approaching things. Well, Jesus' ministry begins with a similar slogan. And you've got it there in verses 14 and 15. And look at what it says. It's interesting. It says, after John was put in prison. So after the Elijah figure has now been arrested and put in prison and he will very soon die, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The time is fulfilled. Now, Jesus is not talking about change of government. He's not talking about some superficial change in the political landscape. He's saying it's time for God's kingdom to be established. It's time for people to turn back to God. It's time for people to repent and believe in Jesus. Now, I think the right response when we read these opening words of Mark's gospel is to be a little bit confused by what's happening. I mean, Mark gives us these grand images about the the promised one coming, and then Jesus does some things that seem to fit, but then other things that don't really seem to fit. God's promised that he'll send his king and his rescuer, but Jesus is a carpenter from Nazareth. I mean, you're expecting an army, and look at the people that he recruits to help him establish the kingdom. Go to verse number 16. Just after, he's announced that the kingdom is near, and and that word literally means the kingdom is right amongst you. It's right here, because the king is here. And then it says this. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting their nets into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And when he'd gone a little further, he, he saw James and John, sons of Zebedee, preparing the boat. And without delay, he called them and they left their father and followed him. Now, it's impressive that they've been willing to leave everything behind, but they're from a, let's say, less than impressive profession. They're fishermen. I mean, it'd be like Jesus gathering up a bunch of fishermen today, I suppose. I mean, how's he going to establish a kingdom with these guys? Well, the answer's actually right here in this passage. The kingdom is established through the preaching of this good news that the king has come. When Jesus speaks, he speaks as one with authority. Jump down a little bit further, verse 21. They went to Capernaum, And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as someone who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Sure, they're amazed by what Jesus is capable of doing, and we'll see that with the miracles, that he can cast out demons and heal the sick. In fact, they're queuing up by the busload to be healed. But Mark says what is central to the kingdom being established is this preaching. 
Miracles aren't at the centre of it. Miracles are not how the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes when the good news is preached, when the message about the king is preached. Mark actually puts in this interesting little story for us. Have a look at verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went looking for him and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else to nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Jesus came to preach this message about the kingdom. The miracles are going to back up that preaching and and give it a foundation, but it's the preaching about the kingdom that Jesus has come for. There's a kind of a tension that runs through Mark's gospel and it runs the whole way through Mark's gospel. The first eight chapters of Mark's gospel, everyone's saying, who is this guy? The things that he says and the things that he does, he's no ordinary man, but no one can quite figure out who he is. He's the carpenter's son from Nazareth and he's got a bunch of fishermen hanging around with him. But the big irony that we see in in Mark's gospel, the ultimate irony is found in the cross, isn't it? That forgiveness and life come by Jesus dying. That he establishes the kingdom by being nailed to a cross. He wins by losing. He brings life through his death. That must have seemed pretty crazy back then. I suppose it still seems pretty crazy today, doesn't it? I mean, the Apostle Paul sums up this very strange contradiction by calling it the foolishness of the cross, that God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And it's the preaching of this good news that will establish the kingdom. You think about how all the other kingdoms in this world have been established... They don't come about by preaching. They come about by diplomacy and negotiation or they come about by force as arms are raised up. But this kingdom, this kingdom will be established as we go about telling people this foolish message of the cross. If you're sitting here this morning as someone who has that trust in Jesus, this is your king. This is the kingdom you're a part of. This is the one that we follow. This is the message that we believe. And this is the message that we preach. 